One of the advantages or disadvantages of getting old is that there are certain songs that you hear, and not only do you remember them, like Fill My Cup, but you remember, which 99% of you will never know the, the names on, the Halley girls singing that song. So uh, it's funny, not only do you remember the song, you can also go back in memory to see on this platform some little girls who are now adults who sang that song. So, uh, getting old. And I did that, one, because it's true, and two, because last time it was difficult making sure that we got everything going, so no one's told me it's not working, so I'll proceed. Jesus, in his early ministry, and we're taking a look at the life and ministry of Jesus, has conversations, dialogues with two people who are looking at them would be entirely different. Last time we took a look at a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, when Jesus was talking to him, would take spiritual information and recompute it to physical things, and Jesus had to correct him. But as a Pharisee, he lived what he considered a righteous life. He followed the law, did all the, the rules, regulations, not only of what this, the Torah prescribed, but also what was required over and above that to show that righteousness and that Jesus, in essence, conversation with them was, in order to even see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And now he's going to have another dialogue, a conversation with someone that as we would look at it, is completely different. And I'm going to explain that difference in just a little bit, so we'll, we'll get into the, the Scriptures. It's a John chapter 4, the first few verses, 1 through 6. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you just read that and you don't have a biblical context, you might say, okay, well, why did he have to go through Samaria? Well, if you look at the map, you would say, well, the most direct way to get from Judea to Galilee is to pr travel through a territory known as Samaria. But any self-respecting Jew would never travel through Samaria. Their travels would take them across the River Jordan. They would then proceed north around Samaria and then go back into Galilee. Well, why did they view that? Well, I'm going to give you a, a brief history of Israel. After Solomon, king of all of the kingdom, when he died, God had determined that he was going to rip the kingdom away from Solomon, although he would leave to the descendants Judea, Judah. And King Jeroboam became king of Israel in the north, and there was a King Rehoboam who was king of Judah in the south. In order to prevent people who lived in Israel to going back to Jerusalem where the temple was in order to worship, felt that if he permitted that, then by the travel back and forth, all of a sudden there would be the reuniting of the kingdom. He would lose power, and therefore, since power was the most important thing to many people, he felt, okay, what I'll do is I will set up places of worship. And he set up a place in Dan and other places so that the people of the north would not have to travel to Judea, to Jerusalem for the temple. And then that being as it may, the people of God then started wandering in their spiritualness 
and started worshiping Baals and other gods and set up temples and sacrifices and places of worship for those other gods. And throughout the northern kingdom's history, uh, they would get worse, and then there would be a king who would, would institute some reforms, and he would uh, get rid of some of the temple worships and other things that was going on to the false uh, gods. However, it always seemed that they would never completely clean house. They would always leave some portion of the evil that existed. Well, to the point where God had had enough of the northern kingdom of Israel, and as they were losing territory, eventually they lost their entire kingdom to the, the Assyrians. And when the Assyrians took over the Israel, they then exiled many of the inhabitants of Israel to other places and then took other people from Mesopotamia and moved them into Israel so that you had, in essence, a mixing. So as far as the Jews were concerned, they were no longer totally Jewish. They were no longer fully brothers. They were half-breeds. And from that half-breed sense, they just didn't want to have anything to do with them. However, that wasn't all the reason they didn't like the Samaritans. The second reason is that when Judah was conquered by the Babylonians and the, the temple was destroyed, when they decided to rebuild a new temple, the people in Judah wouldn't allow the Samaritans to participate in the building of the temple in Jerusalem. So their response was, okay, we're going to build a temple at Mount Gerizim, and we're going to worship there. They also kind of modified the Torah to say that the proper place of worship wasn't in Jerusalem, but the proper place of worship was in Mount Gerizim. And so they had a little different, and so they not only changed the Word of God, they also kind of syncretized their worship of other gods with the worship of Jehovah. So they were both half-reads in the sense of genetics, but they were also not pure when it came to the religion. So the best way to avoid such contact was for everybody to just go around Samaria so that you wouldn't even get any kind of taint on you. So they would travel this. But the scripture says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria not because of the distance, but because later we will see that when Jesus says, I see what the Father is doing and I do that. And the Father had a divine appointment with someone in Samaria. So Jesus had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That tells us two things. One, it's the heat of the day. The sixth hour is about noon. So it's part of the, between noon and about three is the hardest, hottest part of the day. So there's this travel. And we also see that Jesus is human in the sense of he is wearied by his travel. Now, the question is, well, why is he more wearied than the disciples? Because the disciples go off and go to buy some food to come back. And Jesus is resting. If you take a look at Jesus's ministry, his day doesn't start with the disciples. His day starts when it's still dark, praying to the Father. Then he ministers and teaches his disciples and others, people who have difficulty understanding what he's teaching. And then when the day is through for everybody else, he's communing with the Father again. So his days are very long 
much longer than the disciples. And so he's weary, but also it is necessary for that divine appointment for him to be alone at the well. Verse 7, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So you would think that the Samaritan woman would say, Excellent, here's this guy who's talking to me. Notice what she says. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now Jesus is obviously a Jew. Well, how is he obviously a Jew? Because he dresses like one. He has the tassels and the prayer things and the phylactics and all that that a rabbi would wear. And he, he's just obvious. He's Jewish and he's not like the Samaritans. Which kind of begs the question, do people know, not by the way we dress, but by who we are, that we're believers without having to say a word. Now Jesus could have said, well, today's a special day. Notice his response. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Notice, Jesus' response is not, yeah, you're a Samaritan woman, but God loves everybody, and therefore I'm talking to you. God says, but you don't understand. If you knew the gift of God, which most of us don't. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you, instead of asking, saying, oh, I'll give you water, you would have asked me for water. But then notice, just as the Pharisee Nicodemus looked at physical attributes, she does as well. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You see, I don't understand. I've come to draw water. I'm prepared. I have a pot. I have what's necessary to get this water. I don't see that you're equipped with it at all, looking at the physical. Jesus had told Nicodemus, that you must be born again. And to be born again, you must be born of water and spirit. The water is the Holy Spirit that wells up within you. And Jesus says, if you would have asked me, I would have given you that water, that spirit. And then she says, are you not greater than our father Jacob? Are you? You who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. And her question is, well, Jacob's our father. Whether you're a Jew or an Israelite, he was the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. So he's our father. And, and the question is, you're not greater than Jacob. And the question is, are you? And her supposition is that he's not. That Jesus is less than Jacob. And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. Jesus is saying, this water you're going to have to come again and get. But that thirst that you have for spiritual matters, that will well up and the Holy Spirit leading into an eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty, 
nor come all the way to draw here. Again, she's looking at this physical. Give me the water so I don't have to do all the work that's necessary to get the water in the heat of the day and to avoid the situation, make my life easier. The sad thing is, this woman is not different than most of us. Most of our concerns is always wrapped around the physical. Lord, heal this. Lord, do this. Lord, do something else. And we're so concerned about the physical that we miss the spiritual. We miss the eternal blessings because we're so concerned about the temporary ones. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Her response is, Well, wait a minute. He knows about my life. I've never met this man. He's a Jew. Jews don't have any contact with Samaritans. And yet, he's told me my personal history. If you will, Jesus makes her a little uncomfortable. Just like Jesus makes us a little uncomfortable because he knows who we are and where we are. So she does like most of us. She wants to change the subject. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that it's in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Notice he changes the subject. Let's not talk about me. Let's not talk about my personal past. Let's talk theology. And when you're talking to people about the Lord, they will often switch the subject and get on to theology when that's not the point. So she wants to know, well, where are we supposed to worship? We're, say, because our Bible, in essence, says Mount Gerizim. Your people say it's in Jerusalem. So give me all the finer points of where we ought to worship so that we can have a de debate on where we ought to worship instead of dealing with the fact that you know who I am. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus doesn't fall for the trap. He doesn't want to talk about the past. He wants to talk about where God wants worship to come from. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus says, you don't have a complete understanding of what you're doing. And Jesus isn't faulting her for that. But he's saying salvation comes from the Jew, not because they're doing what's right, but because God had ordained that the Messiah would come from Judah. And that salvation would come there. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus talks not only to this woman, but to us as well. Because all too often, what we think about worship is, well, it's 10 o'clock Sunday morning, we're supposed to be here. And some of you are here at 10 o'clock. And some of you are here about 10.15. And some of you are here a little later. But you're, you're here. But when, and then we sing some songs, and you hear either what you consider a good sermon or a fair sermon or a terrible sermon. And we finally, that's over with, and we sing a couple songs, and we're out of here. And you go, well, I did my duty. That's not worship. That's not even good church. God says, it's not where you worship. It's how you worship. 
You can worship in Westminster. You can worship in Huntington Beach. You can even find a church that's really expensive in Newport Beach. But God's not impressed by the location. He's impressed by two things. That you're worshiping in the Spirit. It's not rote. It's not, well, at this point in the service we do this thing. But that you're focused on Him. That you worship Him in spirit. Your spirit acknowledging that the Spirit of God has given you life. And that you worship Him not as a formality, but as who you are. And that you do so in truth. It does matter what we believe. Now we like to argue about what it is we believe and we have hundreds of denominations because we all have different opinions on different things. Generally speaking, our disagreement should not hamper our worship with one another. I'll give you an example. We're Baptists. We believe that baptism means that we dunk you. There are a lot of denominations think that sprinkling is fine. I think they're incorrect spiritually. You, you need to be dunked. But it doesn't mean I can't worship with you. As long as you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That He came and died and was buried and rose again and we are saved by grace. You may think, as most evangelistic Christians do, that we're going to be raptured out of here before the tribulation. Wonderful. I don't think the Scriptures teach that. I can still worship with you and hope you're right, and maybe while we're worshiping, we all get ripped out of here. Praise God. But that doesn't mean because we disagree, we can't worship. It is important one of us are right and one of us are wrong, but the rightness and wrongness should not affect our worship. The only thing that affects our worship is if you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping someone else. And you're saying, the only way I can get to heaven is by my merit. Then we're not worshiping because I can't get there by my merit. I only get there by His grace. So it does matter what we believe, but we make sure it's the big stuff that we agree on. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So she goes, even though I have a different place of worship, and even though I have a different scripture of worship, I also have come to understand that the Christ, the Messiah, is coming, and he's going to make all of these things clear. Jesus' next words I find very interesting. Because as we come to see Jesus' ministry, especially to the Pharisees, he becomes very hazy in what he says. But when you claim not to be a teacher, he becomes very clear. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am him. Jesus doesn't leave it up to her to guess. He doesn't leave it up to her to decide in parables what he's talking about. He speaks plainly, I am the Christ. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Not only was she a Samaritan, in that custom, you weren't supposed to speak to women. Women were to have their own, and if they had questions, they were supposed to talk to their husbands. And so the fact that Jesus is talking to one, a Samaritan, and second, a woman, his disciples go, we don't understand what's going on here. And yet, no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? These guys are always gutless. 
They always have an opinion. They always wonder things, but they never ask Jesus what's going on. They just remain silent in their questions. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, now I'm going to stop there. She left her water pot, which tells me two things. Actually, three things. One, she wasn't finished because she got interrupted with the conversation and either didn't fill or take the water pot. Second, she probably left in haste. And third, her plan was to come back because she left why she came there in the first place. She left her water pot. And said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Now this time her question is, I think he is. I believe he is. And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Notice, after this conversation with Jesus, without seeing any miracles or signs, she has come to not only the realization and, and faith, that Jesus is the Messiah. But she testifies to those around her who he is and say, come and see. To me, this is awesome. Because so many times we'll see in the scriptures as we, as we go through them that everybody's always asking, well, give us a sign, give us a miracle that we might believe. And Jesus never offers one. He doesn't even say, I'm going to give you this living water. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that's speaking to you, which I now tell you I'm the Christ, you would ask him. But he doesn't perform any signs or miracles to confirm it. Other than he knows who she is. And so they're coming out to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? But Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus confirms in his ministry and his life exactly what he said to Satan during the temptations. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus says, yeah, you saw me. I was tired and I was weary from the trends, from the, from the travel. But when I do the work of God, there is invigoration there. There is sustenance there. It's better than food. As the psalmist says, taste the Lord and see that he's good. Then he turns to them and says, Do not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Now, unfortunately, this picture isn't fully presented until later. But when I believe he's saying, look on the fields for ripe for harvest, he's not talking about barley or wheat. He's talking about the men who are coming from Sychar because of the woman's testimony. He's seen those men coming, those people coming, and he's seen, look, the field is ripe for harvest. Don't say, we need to wait four months. Here they come. Already, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. He's saying when it comes to spiritual matters, there are those who will plant. There are those who will water and there are those who will reap. However, in our religious experience, it's only the people who reap seem to be the ones that we look to. 
as the evangelist or the pastor, whoever who gives a sermon and the person decides to make a profession of faith, everybody thinks how wonderful it is, the pastor or the message or the evangelist or whatever. And nobody takes a look at the people who planted the seeds, who were there in faith saying, trust him. I know him. And the people of water who said, yeah, I know the world has this opinion and that opinion, but let me know, tell you what God has done for me. And so the person who gets all the credit as far as the world seems to be concerned in church is those who do the in-gathering. And Jesus is saying, if you planted or you watered, rejoice. Being involved in the work of God. Because you are laboring and have entered into their labors. So, use a really old example. You gave testimony about the Lord, but they didn't accept the Lord under your testimony. Then you invited them to a Billy Graham crusade. And Billy Graham preached the sermon. Now in the early days of Billy Graham, before I was really, if you look at some of the really old, he was really hellfire damnation. He was whatever. You see his older ministry, like when he was at uh, Anaheim Stadium. His sermon was pretty much, Jesus loves you, I love you, you ought to come and be saved. And thousands of people would come and be saved. Because it wasn't the words of Billy Graham. It was the Holy Spirit drawing them and the labor and the planting and the watering of others. And yet we say, well, I got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. No, you just got reaped. The whole process was long before that. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Jesus spoke to a woman that Jews don't usually speak to women, but especially a Samaritan woman, and she believed and she testified. Jesus talked to one a Pharisee who thought he was very religious and wanted to know what he was lacking, and a woman who under our standards had a questionable past. Five marriages, I suspect all five didn't die. They probably just didn't end well. So she started living with the, the present guy. Even back then, that was a little unheard of. But Jesus loved her anyway. Jesus shares himself anyway. And all too often, we think we should only share with those people we think might get saved. And Jesus says, I had to be here because I had an appointment with this woman, which led to the whole town coming and many believing in her testimony, not having even seen Jesus. And he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. He was not just passing through. He came to do ministry even to those that other people considered half-breeds and unworthy religiously. And not only did he reach out to her, he stayed there two days. A few minutes with Jesus changed her life. Could you imagine what two days with that town could do? And many more believe because of his word. So some came to faith because of the testimony of the woman. And some came to faith because they met Jesus. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, 
and know that this one is indeed the Savior, not of the Samaritans, not of the Jews, but of the whole world. They saw who Jesus was. They said, yes, some of us came to faith because of your testimony. Other of us came to faith because of meeting Jesus. But no matter which way we came to faith, we all got more grounded in faith and more assured because of our time spent with him. All too often, churches and evangelistic crusades are about birthing babies. We preach how to get saved and whatever, and people do or they don't. And then we go on saying, well, we got to have more babies. Instead of teaching them and spending time with them so that they are grounded not just in the testimony that we gave to them who he is, but that they spend time with him and are reassured and are confirmed that Jesus is the Messiah. Not because I said so, because they met him and he says. It is not the obligation of the church only to create new believers. It is the obligation of the church to develop and grow believers so that they can stand firm in the faith. And after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves went to the feast. The ending of this narrative has Jesus moving on. I find it a little sad. Because notice, even though it talks about them receiving him, it's because they saw the things that he did, not who he is. And the Samaritans, the one that everybody hates, saw not what he did, but who he is. And if I have any desire in my ministry, it's not to have miracles, oh Lord, there are times I wish I, God gave me the gift of miracles, especially healing. Because when I see people that I love and others suffering physically, that I could just, God, if you just give me the, the ability to lay hands and heal them. There are a number of people in our congregation I would have loved to have done that so they would have had to gone through chemo and all that you've had to go through. But more than that, I pray that my ministry isn't about what Jesus does, but who he is. And not what God can do, but who he is. Yes, God can move mountains. And yes, God can do the impossible. And yes, God can heal, and yes, God can save, and yes, God can do all sorts of wonderful things. But the most wonderful thing about God, He loves you, that His grace endures forever. As we sang, nothing can separate us from the love of God not even ourselves. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And if you do not know Him, I, my prayer is that you come to know Him. And it's important that you come to know Him, whether it's you come to know Him because of some miracle that happens in your life, or it's because you simply have a conversation with Him and come to realize that if you knew who he was and the gift 
that he has. That that gift is not temporary, it's not physical, it's eternal. Eternal life. And if you are given eternal life, what can anybody else take away from you? Houses are temporary. Cars are temporary. Clothing's temporary. But the house that he's building for us is permanent. Come to know the one who is the Messiah. Stand with me as we pray.
God, you are. 